Welcome to the Surf Sounds podcast, a series from Surf. This episode is being recorded at the Education Days conference. It's one of a series at the conference here in 2022 in the Brabant Hall. And I'm your host, Andy Clark. The theme of the conference is decisiveness, dard cracked in Dutch, and making decisive choices. And this is crucial when it comes to technology and education. How do we choose the best technology? What are the challenges and opportunities? And how do we manage all of this? This edition of the podcast is a double header, looking at quantum technology and XR, extended reality. Um, when it, what is quantum technology exactly? And when is it going to impact our education? And how will XR technology change the way we teach? First, I'm joined by Ariana Torres, and she is a surf advisor, and she's going to share some insights on quantum technology with us. Ariana, welcome. Thank you. Please introduce yourself a little more before we carry on. Uh, sure. Well, yeah, I'm actually, quantum computing is relatively new, so I do not belong to the generation that learned quantum computing or that was created in the time of quantum computing. I myself, I am a physicist. I did a PhD, I did a postdoc, and then I gave up on academia, I have to say. <laughs> um, but then I joined quantum computing, and uh, it's such an exciting field. Uh, it's really, you're at the edge of the technology. We're all still trying to figure out what this is for, how can we use it. And for me, it has been a great journey of something between IT, education, research. Um, yeah, that's about a bit about myself. I am clearly not from the Netherlands. <laughs> Otherwise, I would uh, maybe the podcast would be in Dutch. Uh, I come from Mexico, um, been living in the Netherlands for 10 years and really enjoying it. Well, welcome. Welcome. We're glad to, uh, you're here and we're happy to hear your insights. Let's start at the beginning, I guess, with quantum technology. Where do we need to start with it? It can, it can be a confusing technology, I think. Maybe I'm speaking for myself, but I'm looking around as well. Perhaps we need some explanation to start with. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think... Right now, a lot of people still, when they hear the word quantum, they sort of tremble a little bit, right? It's, uh, I have noticed that when I talk about quantum, you know, people ask me, what do you do for a living? And I mention the word quantum, they just walk away. Happens very often. <laughs> um, so, so, you know, we, we are still in a generation where quantum is, is, it sounds like physics. Oh, I was really bad at it at school. It's really difficult. Uh, but so what is quantum in its sort of most simplistic way of putting it is really the way matter behaves in the really tiny, tiny scales, right? So it's really how our world is behaving. So, so we're all used to this, what we call Newton mechanics, which is really, you know, you push an object, it moves. But in reality, at a very, very tiny scale, things behave differently, and that's explained by quantum mechanics. Uh, now, quantum mechanics has, has a couple of different aspects to it. Probably the most known ones is uh, what is called superposition, interference, entanglement. And I guess most of you have uh, seen this, or, or when you think of quantum, you think of the Schrodinger cat, right? Is it dead or is it alive? Uh, so, so yeah, this is the type of things that I think pop in people's head when you say quantum. Let's unpack those three elements a little bit then. You mentioned three things there. You mentioned superposition, entanglement, and interference. Let's take them one by one. So <laughs> superposition, what, what do you mean by that? Yeah, so... so already gets very complicated eh, in the first question. Um, so, you know, quant uh, computers, classical computers, the, the, the ones that we conventional, let's call it, uh, they work with bits, right? So a bit can have uh, two states, it can be a zero or a one. In terms of transistors, it's on or off. Um, 
But qubits, which is sort of the quantum bits, uh, they can be in what is called a superposition of states. So that means it can have more than one state at the same time. Uh, so I think the, the most known example or analogy that is used to explain this is imagine a coin that is just thrown to the air, right? While it's in the air, it's not heads or, or tails. It's somewhere sort of in between those two. And it can be both of them at the same time. So that's like the idea, right? Superposition is this idea that you can be in more than one state at the time. Okay. Entanglement? Uh, that one is a tough one. <laughs> I thought the first one was also pretty tough, but yeah, carry on. Yeah, so entanglement, um, I think the easiest way to put it is a highly correlated state. Um, so there are a lot of different analogies to that, but imagine, for example, that you create, you have two boxes, and I give one to this side with a, a, a red pebble and one to that side to a blue pebble. Uh, so without knowing anything from that, if this side opens and sees a red pebble, they by definition know the other side has a blue pebble, right? Why is that? Because you created the boxes in a very correlated state, right? It was one, it could only be one or the other. Uh, so entanglement is a bit on those lines, right? Creating states that are highly correlated so that when you know something about one, one part of the state, you know the others. So it really maximizes, uh, in terms of quantum computing, it's really important because it lets you sort of do many operations at the same time. You know, you ask one qubit, what is your state? And suddenly you have information about the whole system. And when there's one to go then, which is the, the last one, which is interference? Yeah, interference is a bit of a, a consequence of uh, superposition. And it has to do with, uh, think of waves, right? I mean, superposition is also something that, for those of you that maybe study physics, you know, superposition of waves. So in interference, the idea is that if you have waves, you can manipulate them, right? So imagine you have a front like this and another front like this. They can interfere constructively or destructively. So they can amplify the effects or they can destroy their effects. Uh, what this means in terms of quantum computing is uh, normally when you throw the coin to the air, right? It can be in either one or zero, but we could in principle manipulate or bias it towards one result or the other by, for example, putting a weight in the coin, right? You shouldn't do that, but uh, <laughs> we could. So, so you know, we can, th there can be interference of states. You can uh, manipulate the probability of getting one state or the other by sort of constructively adding to the probability or destructively adding to the probability. Okay, so this is the theoretical background of quantum, quantum technology. Where are we in, in practice? What's this good for? <laughs> what sort of problems are we solving with this technology? Or is it mere in a, more in a, an abstract phase at the moment? Well, I think, first of all, um, uh, w when people talk about quantum information and technology, uh, there are three main topics in, in that uh, line. So quantum sensors, uh, which is really using quantum properties to uh, have more precise measurements, right? So this can be very useful, for example, in uh, medical imaging, uh, atomic clocks, this type of thing. So that's one side. Uh, you have quantum communication. The most sounded uh, case is uh, quantum key distribution, so a protocol to really encrypt your information. And then the third aspect is quantum computing. Now, quantum computing is really more like a, a, this sort of sound uh, by Google or IBM, how to use quantum computers to accelerate research, right? Or to accelerate drug discovery. Like that's what you hear a lot about it. I think they're all in different stages. So quantum sensors is probably the most developed of them all, um, but the applications are still emerging, right? Uh, quantum communication 
Uh, quantum key distribution, for example, you can already buy commercial um, QKD uh, makers. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, I mean, it's already at that point, right? But there's still a lot of research that needs to be done and also a lot of research in how do we use it. That that part is still not unfolded yet. Quantum computer, I think, is still the youngest of them all. Uh, we are currently, uh, because that's my specialty, so it's the one I can talk the most, um, we're currently in what is called the NISC era. So that stands for noisy intermediate uh, devices, quantum devices. And the main point is... Um, Again, back to this analogy of the coin, right? You can imagine if you have these qubits, all of them coins flipping, they are very sensitive to noise, right? I mean, the wind passes and suddenly your whole states are destroyed. <laughs> um, so, so this is a problem because the quantum computers we have nowadays are not yet powerful enough to do anything useful, to be honest. I mean, they are very good to, to test our ideas and uh, to understand how to use these devices, but we are not yet in the point where if you write something and you run it in a quantum computer, you will see quantum advantage. We are not there yet. But, but is this the future? Is this the way that computing, computer technology is going? I think that's what most of us hope and expect, and I think it's coming faster than what we think. Um, if you see the developments of classical computing back in the day and the developments of quantum computing now, it's exponentially faster right now uh, how things are going, right? So it's a very young field. and. Just last week, IBM announced there are now 400 qubits quantum computer, which is really three times bigger than what they had last year, which is a lot in terms of qubits. Um, so we're slowly reaching the point where, you know, maybe we can take advantage of these computers. So quicker, it, they, they can deal with more, do more uh, computations. It can lead to better encryption. These are the, that's the kind of level we're at at the moment, but very theoretical still. Um, well, when it comes specifically with quantum computing, um, I mean, there has been a lot of development of algorithms. Obviously, the hardware is developing very fast. Um, I think the application side is the one that we're still sort of lacking a bit, right? Because it's not easy. Like, we have invented this great hammer, and we're still looking for a nail for it. Um, like, we have really great algorithms, but how do you use these algorithms in sort of current applications is not that straightforward, right? I mean, mm. uh, I think most of us, the way it Im we imagine it is a bit like an accelerator, like a GPU accelerator, right? Where you find a something that could really make use of the quantum properties of the quantum computer. Um, but finding this niche and, and figuring out how to embed this in, in what we do uh, currently is not that straightforward. And it's still a, a very active area of research. Uh, so much that uh, most of the quantum providers, uh, AWS, Azure, Google, they are all really like giving you free credits to use uh, their computers if you come up with a good application. Like they are really hoping for someone to say, hey, this is useful. Please, please. Yeah, yeah please really, that's, that's it. Help, <laughs> us, help us find something to do with this technology. But we're at an education conference. So, you know, why should people in education be interested in this what sounds as though it could have a lot of potential, but at the moment we're still struggling to find a problem for it to solve. Yeah, so I think I have a couple of answers for that, so I'm going to now bore you with Go that. For it. <laughs> so the first one is, uh, yeah, we're trying to find applications and, you know, quantum advantage and all that, but we tend to forget that uh, quantum computers, the first thing that they are giving us, it's a machine that allows us to manipulate uh, matter. I mean, this is the most precise machine to manipulate matter, right? So basically, we created this puppet that now allows us to see what the world does. And this is amazing, right? And from an educational point of view, you suddenly have these tools, this machinery to, to teach 
you know, how quantum, like understand quantum effects and really see them happening. Um, and I mean, the quantum theory dates back almost 100 years by now, but now we can actually witness what it is doing, right? You can submit a circuit and then see this randomness, this probabilistic nature of, of, of the matter. So I think that's the first part in the educational side to see this as a really amazing tool for quantum, uh, for teaching a part of, of nature that I think so far was very unrelatable and probably still is, right? So suddenly we have some way to maybe connect a bit more with this world. To, to um, help us understand the basic building blocks of, of our world, is that what you're saying? Yeah, just the more probabilistic part of it, but yeah, the basic building blocks, right? Because I think it's, I mean, everything is difficult to teach, but particularly things that are so unrelatable, like quantum, uh, so out of our experiences, it's very difficult, right? We don't have the right analogies, we don't have the right examples, and already having a machine that can help us in, in teaching that, I think it's, it's a really great machine, right? Even if you don't use the quantum computers, but just the simulators, because they have developed a lot, it's incredible what you can do with them and how much you can learn. So that is on one side. I think um, because there is a high race on quantum computing, like we are definitely still going up in the hype cycle, <laughs> There is so much material out there. I mean, this is a great moment to educate ourselves. Like, we are not yet at the point of, uh, of taking advantage, but we're at the point of catching up with the knowledge, right? Quantum computer, uh, quantum physics, quantum computing is not an easy topic. We need quite some time as researchers, as, as teachers, as educators, uh, IT uh, experts. We need time to figure out how this works. And we should leverage the next five to 10 years while the actual people come up, comes up with the great computers, we should use this time to prepare ourselves. I heard a quote uh, last week in a conference that was something on the lines of, um, if you're early, you're on time. If you're on time, you're late. And I think that applies very much to quantum, right? I mean, if you try to be there when the quantum computers are ready, you're gonna be behind because it takes a lot of, you know, it's, it's really a different level of abstraction. And maybe the last point I want to make for education is that I think it's also a great field for sort of see how we can teach um, in the sense that it's a difficult topic. It's a topic that requires a lot of abstraction, a topic that, you know, it forces you to think of different ways of teaching it. So also see it as a, as a nice playground for teaching and developing pedagogical tools, in my opinion. Like I think, you know, I have seen everything from uh, songs, I mean, it's a circuit and then they made it a song, drawing with quantum. I mean, people are really coming with the cleverest, more ingenious ideas to teach this topic. And I think this is really exciting if you're also in the sort of research for education pedagogical tools. Okay, who's excited in the room then? And maybe somebody's <laughs> already busy with quantum. Maybe we can get a few questions from the room already. Has anybody got a question for Ariana? Okay, Ariana, we've got no takers at the moment, so we've got our work cut out. We've got to try and convince the room here <laughs> in the next five or ten minutes that this is the way to go. I mean, are, are you surprised that people are not busy with this uh, so far? Not at all, actually, but I think uh, uh, I also get it. I mean, um, right now, getting, I mean, for, specifically, for example, uh, for quantum computing, but I think this applies to all quantum technologies. It's not something you will you know, get for your university so easily or get access to so easily. So I understand what people are not yet invested. Uh, having said that, you do see more and more um, universities, uh, applied universities, sort of moving towards this. So uh, Leiden is now starting a master project together with TU Delft, uh, 
the University of Amsterdam is also starting a master project on this. I know the University of Applied Sciences of, the, of Amsterdam already started a minor. Um, there are courses online for high school universities. I think it's really, uh, it's becoming a thing as in, you know, if this is really the next paradigma, then we should start teaching our students. But I understand, I mean, it's not something you can use now, right? So you yeah. don't see the... the, the yeah. So I, I get it. I, I, I get why people are not there. <laughs> uh, having said that, I mean, there is a big focus as well, right? I mean, quantum computing or quantum technology efforts in the Netherlands are sort of centralized in what's called the quantum delta. I don't know if you guys have heard about it. There is a whole action line that is just for the development of competence and training because it's so important, right? And we're reaching a point in... Um, in quantum technologies where the technology is advancing faster than the development of workforce. So there is a massive focus on how to develop workforce because we don't have it. There is so many jobs right now. If, if people know anything about quantum technologies, there are so many jobs out there, not only for technical aspects. I know that also, for example, uh, there is a lot into program managers that know a little bit of quantum because it's not a project easy to manage, right? So it goes through all the aspects that if you know a little bit of quantum, it gives you already now a very broad scope of a, of a, a job perspective. And I think that's important if you're thinking also from the educational perspective that, you know, there is a need. So let's develop a workforce for this need as well, right? I mean, we're also preparing the future in that sense. Um, there's quite a few people in the room here, so I'm a bit interested to know why, why everybody has turned up then. I mean, maybe with a show of hands, just quickly, are, are people thinking about, um, first question, are people thinking about using quantum technology in education in the future? I see two, two hands in, in a room of about 50, 60 people, and, uh, and, and the rest are kind of just come here to learn a little bit about what it is, or? <laughs> I see more hands and people nodding and people at the back who are still awake, which is good. Uh, so that's that's great. Uh, so it really is, you know, there's a lot of you know, people here are experts in, in, you know, ICT, in computing and education. And, and yet here as well, there's a lot of kind of, uh, yeah, information needed to, to convince the audience here, Ariana. Yeah, I mean, not only here, I think also in research, people are still very skeptic about it, right? I mean, um, we haven't come up as we, the field of quantum, <laughs> uh, with, with really examples to, to say, hey, this is it, right? Um, I mean, it's a very young, underdevelopment field, and I think we still need to prove, let's say, our usefulness, our yeah, place in the world to say something. Um, but I think it's also great to be part of it, and it's also important that it's a developing field. That means all our contributions can guide this, right? So, so it's also... That, that's part of the fun of it, right? I think that the fact that it's so young means it's not that well accepted yet, but it's also, yeah, yeah. a great place to, to be at. There's plenty of potential there. I, I saw a hand going up there in the audience was there as a question. Here we have in the front row. So we're gonna be uh, tested now to see uh, um, what the interest is. Yeah, let's see if this works. So, uh, um, so far very interesting, difficult topic to grasp. Um, the, the question I had in mind is, I think a lot of the topics we talk about here at the Education Days are already a derivative of the possibilities of digital innovation or digital infrastructures or ICT. Um, what, if you are a little bit liberal in your uh, 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 dreams and hopes and nightmares perhaps, 
what do you what where do you see the impact of quantum reaching maybe the digital infrastructures and then as a consequence maybe the, the kind of topics we're working on uh, in, in in sort of digital infrastructures or uh, the kinds of applications that might become possible that are not yet possible uh, do you have any in that regard yeah well i mean i think um impact maybe the one that comes more to mind is what probably most people associates also with quantum cybersecurity. so the fact that you're encrypting data and that this can be unencrypted by a quantum computer so that is definitely one qkd which means more secure ways of communicating information so i know you know educational information personal information is important so it's also important to look at this uh, developments i mean all the banks military they are looking into this because they are properly scared right um, and so the educational sector also holds a lot of very important information. So we should also, you know, start thinking about it. Of course, uh, we're not there yet, but we should start thinking about what to do with this to leverage it, but also to protect ourselves. Uh, when it comes to quantum computer, I think um, it opens possibilities of doing research that is beyond what we can do now. Um, and, and, you know, that's so exciting. Like imagine being able to really simulate how a protein you know, unfolds just in the classroom. I mean, you said go liberal, huh? this is going liberal. Um, so I think, I mean, it really opens the, the space for such an amazing new advancement in, in what we can do during the classrooms, but also with the students. Might it start with something kind of which we can get our heads around, like security? And you say there are already applications for better encryption. And, you know, educational institutions are busy with security. We know that people have been, you know, uh, taken hostage, ransomware. There are all kinds of big security issues which can be hugely expensive for educational institutions. So might that be a kind of gateway into this technology? And after using something which we can perhaps understand more readily, we would move on to more new applications. Um, yeah, I mean, it, it, it's different fields, right, as I said. I think, like, uh, um, yeah, maybe it's, it sounds like we're all in the same field, but if I talk to someone that does quantum sensing or quantum communication, I'm a bit off. Like, uh, uh, I know the basics. If you're off, then we have no yeah, chance. Yeah, I mean, Absolutely just share no the chance. basic building blocks, right? But uh, <laughs> uh, nowadays, the fields are so specific that yeah. we diverge very fast. One layer and we're out, right? Um, so I think, in general, my approach as a... As a university as an educational place would really be on the lines of, you know, start exploring, see what's there, see what's possible, uh, keep an eye on, on, on what is going on and start thinking also how to leverage this for teaching, especially courses like physics, chemistry. There is a lot to be gained there. Um, yeah, that would be my, my general advice. Uh, is it, ex oh, is there a hand in, in the room? While the microphone is on its way to the next uh, question there, let me just ask a quick question. Is it expensive to, to for educational institutions to start looking at this? Yeah, quantum computing is very expensive at the moment. Uh, I just heard from IBM people that apparently if you run 24 hours on a quantum computer, it's about a million euros. <laughs> okay. So just to give an idea of where we are now. Right. Now, 24 hours, just don't panic. It's a <laughs> lot of quantum computing time. I don't see many primary schools no, uh, no. running so that's, into that kind of, that's or, or part of secondary the schools or universities even. Okay, question uh, from, from the room. Yeah, hi. Good afternoon. My name is Marie de Vries. I'm from NHL Standen. And I'm actually wondering, you spoke about uh, cooperations between universities of applied science. Can you give some examples? Um, so I know the University of Amsterdam has a minor. They started a minor on quantum computing or quantum technologies in general. 
Uh, and uh, we at SURF, we have hosted a couple of interns from them, also student projects. Uh, I know Capgemini has also been involved in this. Uh, in terms of big companies that are working on quantum computing, actually it's quite a lot that uh, are there. Uh, KLM is looking into that, ABN is looking into that, ING, I mean, really it's a very broad uh, amount of, of companies. And uh, from what I've read, actually it's expected that, you know, in a couple of years you will have at least 50% of the companies at least looking into these technologies. Um, yeah, so I think there is definitely a lot of, yeah, synergy that can be done there. Okay. Thank you. Another question? No? Okay. Any more questions from the room? Okay, Ariana, um, where can people go to learn more about uh, quantum technologies? Yeah, that's a good question. There is so much material. Like one of the difficult parts about quantum is that it's evolving so fast that adapting takes half of your time. But I mean, within the Netherlands, I, uh, the University of Amsterdam has a very nice uh, setting called Quest. So it's sort of like a high school, uh, it's for high school actually, it's a course of quantum computing for a high school level, really nice. Um, uh, Leiden University has something called Quantum Rules, also in the same lines, like sort of a, an easy, you know, layman way of learning quantum computing. Beyond that, the tutorials of all the providers, so IBM tutorials are, uh, known to be really good, like they really put so much effort in this educational part. Videos in YouTube, insane amount of really good videos. Um, so, I mean, if you want the information, I'm happy to, to give more references, but there is plenty. And, and how long do you think it'll be before we see the first quantum applications being used in education in the Netherlands? Ah, that's, that's a tough one. Um, yeah, I, I don't know. I think the first applications we will see will be in the field of chemistry. That's always been the sort of expected thing, uh, because if quantum computers are good at something, it's simulating quantum systems, and that means chemistry, that means proteins. Um, so I think the first applications we might see is for things like uh, drug discovery, uh, catalysis, this type of things. I think, you know, the moment the, the, the companies have something on it, then why not we can start also include this as part of the curricula of how to learn about the systems, right? How to be the puppeteer of the puppet. Okay, nice way to finish. Ariana Torres, thank you very much for talking to us about quantum technologies. So welcome to the second uh, half of this uh, podcast uh, from the uh, Surf Sounds series. Um, we are recording here at the, the Brabant Halle in uh, Brabant uh, in, uh, as part of the Education Days um, uh, conference here. And uh, we just heard from Ariana Torres there all about quantum technology. And now I'm joined by um, John Walker, who works for Surf investigating the role of emerging technologies in education and research. And we're going to be talking about XR, extended reality. John, welcome. Maybe you can say a little bit more about yourself before we get into it. Hey, Andy. It's good to see you again. Nice to see nice you. Nice to sit down. Uh, well, my name is John Walker, as you said. I come out of the U.S. as well, uh, another place not that, that's not the Netherlands. I actually was chasing a dream uh, coming to the Netherlands to do more technology ethics. Uh, I studied a philosophy of technology at the University of Twente. And there I found some very inspiring people uh, and was able to, yeah, uh, well, basically find a school of thought that I could understand and hopefully take with me as I go through the world. Um, and I landed at SURF about a year ago this month. Um, so it's been a really amazing adventure. And uh, now I live in Enschede on the border uh, with my partner. And uh, yeah, it's 
really nice to sit here. Well, welcome. We're glad you're here. Um, we're going to be talking about XR, extended reality. A lot of most people know about, or I know about, virtual reality. XR, extended reality. What what is it? Yeah, uh, I mean, have you ever put on a helmet? Have you ever put on a, a headset? Andy? A virtual headset? Yeah, a, a long time ago. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, they still do simulations. So, so extended reality is more of an umbrella term. Uh, the term, well, can be used with a mix of things. So it could be AR and VR. It could be just mixed reality. Um, but the the point being, it's it's simulations on a screen in your face. And uh, if you have augmented reality, you're most likely looking through. Uh, well, the popular example is Google. Uh, they're glasses uh, that have a screen on them uh, and you can see through, well, your glasses. Uh, mixed reality will be using uh, basically simulations in front of you, as you might have it, and then you also look through a video lens, um, so the cameras of the headset, and then, of course, there's virtual reality, which is more encompassing. You are sort of living in a virtual world. Um, does that make sense? It makes sense, yeah. Augmented reality, I kind of get it, is looking yeah. at the, the real world with things popping up with extra info, yeah. and virtual reality, I have a feeling it's more sort of gaming, a kind of virtual world, and mixed reality yeah. would be then somewhere in between the two, I guess. Yeah, so basically it's, it's trying to use the cameras on the headset to look around the world, so you get the benefits of having a simulation in front of you, but also looking around at the world as it is. Okay, and how are we using this stuff in education? Well, it's a big topic. <laughs> There's a lot going on. Uh, we've been doing an XR tour where we go around the Netherlands and visit our members and also meet just people that uh, maybe go to the school or our students. Uh, and I have seen so many, many uh, different uses of simulations in education. It's fascinating. Give us a good um, example. Then. Yeah, well, for instance, I mean, there's a few, but uh, one is archaeology is having, is having a very interesting sort of dynamic where they are trying to use GIS data as well as Google Maps to show students archaeology sites far away from their homes. Um, so if you are interested in archaeology, you can put a headset on and look at sites that are in, in, uh, you know, in Italy, if you're sitting in the Netherlands, and you can see uh, whether or not, or you can study archaeology in that sense. But there's also other uses such as we see in the medical world. Um, people are using sort of virtual cadavers to take advantage, well, to basically uh, cut them open, learn protocols of surgery. Uh, and of course, there's also a lot of use still in trying to understand if the virtual classroom is something we want. Um, but that one is still sort of up in the air. People are not sure yet. I guess, you know, with, with COVID, obviously, there was a lot of education, you know, online. And, and so yeah. virtual classroom then sounds interesting and sounds a much more, yeah, enriched version of yeah. that kind of online, you know, watching the teacher via Zoom or Teams. This sounds like some a whole different league. Yeah, it's, I mean, from an international perspective, we're seeing, for instance, uh, a lottery that was done with Meta, uh, the Facebook company, uh, that gave away a lot of headsets to a bunch of universities and state schools in the United States. Uh, one school you know, has 45,000 students and they are trying to get them headsets. Um, now, maybe not every student, but certainly a lot of students are getting free headsets where they go and they enter their virtual uh, campus uh, and experience their college life online, um, but in a virtual way. So 
hopefully it's a bit more engaging than just having Zoom calls every day, as I also lived through this last couple of years. <laughs> um, but it is, it is, there's still some problems with it. I mean, many, many, many people still feel very nauseous from putting these glasses on or putting yeah, I was on ask virtual you, how reality. Does it, yeah, yeah. I mean, that was yeah. always the kind of traditional image you had. People were, you know, using the virtual reality glasses with a roller coaster and then they'd be throwing up all over yeah, the place. Totally. Is that still, still an issue? <laughs> Well, you'd be surprised. Uh, I mean, I think there's been some very innovative and novel ideas on how to limit nauseous feelings. Um, but people still also complain that the batteries don't last long enough on the headsets and that, well, it's disorienting to hold it or to put it on your face for more than, say, 32 minutes to an hour. Um, now, all that said, uh, it's still something you should try. Uh, I do think that education benefits from it a lot, and there are some really good reports coming out that show, for instance, with the cadaver example, um, protocols in surgery or understanding sort of certain processes in surgery um, could be as good in uh, virtual reality uh, as using a real cadaver or a dead body. And th there's some really interesting studies that show that that might be the case. Um, so what does that's that mean amazing. for education? That's really yeah, amazing. That's amazing, right? Uh, you can, yeah, and wow. this is part of the simulations getting very good, right? Mm. And, and also um, the headsets being a bit more powerful and sort of, as we see, a lot of funding from different companies to make this stuff popular or try to. Um, so we're not just talking yeah. about, we're also talking about tracking hand movements as well. If you're talking about, you know, practicing surgery, it's more than just looking through something stuck on your head. Yeah, and, and in that sense, we're, uh, well... As you can imagine, sort of uh, drowning in data. I mean, we are now seeing that these headsets are able to collect data about your pupils, the eyes, how big your pupil is. Uh, we can see what your face looks like, what your eyes look like, what your, uh, well, it goes on, lips, everything. Uh, and that includes actually how you walk, how you move in the headset. Um, and so you end up with these very interesting cases where what do we do with this data later on? Um, unfortunately, these headsets are still very platform uh, owned. So, you know, that data goes to Meta. Um, it does not go anywhere else. Although yeah. Meta can't tell you where that data goes. <laughs> okay. Because you said that uh, Meta or Facebook, as they were, you know, had given out how many? 45,000 free headsets. And, you know, there's not no such thing as a free lunch, my mom always used to tell me. Oh. So, so yeah, what's, what's the deal yeah. here? Yeah. Uh, actually, I mean, that's still an open question. Okay. We, I mean, uh, you can... Uh, there's some good papers on sort of thinking and uh, <laughs> interpreting what their actions are as a company. Um, and currently, I mean, I think in the next couple of years, we will see dramatic changes in meta and, and the ways in which these headsets are viewed in education, especially, and some in research, uh, with the sort of <laughs> decline or this, this pop that we're seeing in tech companies um, after the, well, uh, somewhat after the pandemic, right? Um, yeah. So yeah, no, yeah, that's a good question. I don't know. As, a, as an expert, what would, what's your advice, you know, to, to educational organizations looking at this? You know, it might be attractive to be able to get some free headsets and and how to use. How should they negotiate this quite tricky? Path yeah, good then? question. Um, well, I mean, one one thing to consider, I guess, you know, speaking on behalf of of, of Surf, is to look at well public values. I mean, um, think about how it might impact the well-being of your students. Think about how it might in, impact your autonomy as a teacher. You know, where. Where are you in the virtual world if all of your students have headsets on? Now, you might be in the world with them, but um, that really depends on, again, the platform, the application you use, and how it's going to change your curriculum. So, uh, you know, maybe ask your own selves amongst your teachers, like, what do you think is important? Um, now, again, the simulations offer some amazing benefits, uh, but there is definitely a concern for people's well-being <laughs> and, well, 
sort of the rights of your data, which they just can't meet yet. Um, but I mean, on the positive side, I mean, there must be some good examples in the Netherlands of, of educational institutions using this. Do you have any more examples of, of how it's being used really to, to create new opportunities for, for people, uh, you know, students and uh, yeah, kids at school? Uh, yeah, I mean, uh, I, I know that there are schools in the Netherlands uh, that are trying to basically pay students to make simulations. Um, there's also schools in the Netherlands that are using this stuff uh, to t teach lawyers. So they go into virtual, uh, sort of virtual, uh, what is the word? Uh, courtrooms. Courtrooms, yeah, yeah, yes. Yeah. And, and they get to see the courtroom. They get to walk around it. They get a feeling for the floor, right, or how, it, how it's laid out. Um, things like this. Uh, and, of course, the big money right now is still, I think, in digital twins of, well, engineering, right? Uh, we've been in simulations uh, on our XR tour. We go and see simulations around the around different parts of the Netherlands as well as we went to Belgium for a second and uh, uh, we saw a digital simulation of a giant wind generator. So you're placed in a simulation and in you're on a wind generator in the middle of the ocean and this thing was highly detailed um, and you can imagine that you can just walk through with people on the wind, wind generator and show them where pieces are. There were server rooms, wires, even the uh, bolts on the door were rusting. I mean, it was really an amazing digital okay. twin. Yeah. Um, but anyways, this goes back into the Netherlands. There is a plethora of examples. It's really okay. fascinating. And how is it changing education? You know, how can this technology shape and form the future of education, do you think? Yeah, that's a good question. Uh, well, on the one hand, I think we are still waiting to see if education wants these headsets. Uh, I know that Meta and other companies have probably offered different institutions these headsets, uh, again, probably for free uh, to gather data as well as see what opportunities they have, how interested the education market of the Netherlands is in this. Um, I think for now, in, in many ways, uh, educators that are using these headsets are finding them to be very, well, uh, maybe not intuitive in the beginning, but they're learning to use them. Um, I also think that there is still a need for, well, developing these competencies in educators. I do not think that you can just set a headset in a classroom and <laughs> uh, learners will suddenly just become smarter um, using the headset uh, in ways that are, well, going to be innovative for education, but also, uh, well, as you said, shaping new practices, right, in the classroom. Uh, how will these <laughs> headsets change the interaction between students? Um, I think what we see a lot of is students generally group up around a headset. Um, so they will sort of share the headset between each other, talk about what's going on in simulation. Um, if they're lucky, they can actually stream the headsets uh, view into a phone or a device and then see what the person is seeing in VR. Um, but this is all of using specifically virtual reality. Um, I haven't seen much in mixed reality yet. Um, again, that's more industry still, still a lot of like hollow lens and stuff. Yeah. Um, yeah. What, what does it take for educators then to be able, what's the, what steps do educators have to go through to be able to get their heads around this technology so they can implement it in a, you know, in a very useful way in, uh, in the, in the classes basically, you know, for the, to get the most out of it. Mm, yeah, I think. Yeah, I don't, I don't, if there's a best practices, I'd love to hear somebody raise their hand and tell me they have it. But uh, for now, I, I'd say they need to reach out to their own teaching and learning centers uh, and the places that, well, teachers can go to gain competencies like this. I mean, there's so many examples in the Netherlands at each school that we've gone to uh, or a university um, that, you know, I, there's people working on this to help you do that. Um, and they're very interested in when, what your opinion is uh, as well on whether or not it can help your classroom. 
Um, so I, I would say reach out if you're if you're a member. Reach out to us. Um, we're also trying to figure out what people need as well as what the current situation is in the, the landscape of the Netherlands um, regarding XR. Um, but yeah, it's really it's really a good question. I, best practices on XR use are developing currently. Developing, yeah. Yeah. And um, people in the room uh, busy with um, extended reality, virtual reality, anywhere? Show of hands. See a few hands. Any questions for for John? about uh, anything you've been coming up against or issues you'd like to think uh, you need where you need more support or yeah please yeah thanks Andy uh, hi John uh, my name is Neville Bounds from Biamp we're a professional audio manufacturer uh, based in Portland uh, Oregon uh, in my spare time uh, when I have any I do an aviation podcast every Friday with a couple of my chums um, and what's it called the, it's called plain talking UK nice name uh, available on all uh, popular platforms um, one of the problems that the aviation community has, and this is from a commercial point of view rather than an educational one, is that there is a finite number of simulators in the world, and they cost millions of euros uh, each. And one of the problems is that the, because so many flight deck crew were laid off during the pandemic, trying to bring these guys and girls back quickly is a real problem. Do you think that things like XR and the platform that it offers uh, can offer not necessarily a shortcut way, but more of a, uh, a more cost-effective way of um, offering flight simulation rather than these massive rigs that they have to build. Yeah, I uh, imagine that what we're going to see is that that cost go down. I mean, I think it's confusing right now because, well, you have so much money also going into energy, right, as we have this crisis. Um, I imagine that as these quantum or well, quantum, right, will scale and suddenly change everything. But no, I think I think actual processing power will continue to be very expensive for the time being. Um, but as you said, uh, these simulations offer some capabilities that we just can't do in the real world. I mean, you could actually, you don't generally want to shoot down a plane with somebody in it, but you can in a simulation. Uh, and you know, there's, uh, I think there's new opportunities. And you're right, they do cost millions of euros or dollars to use. Um, but I think the fact that as we continue to see processing power increase, at least for the time being, uh, it should become cheaper. I mean, and can that, is it cheaper to build a plane? I don't think so. But you're right, uh, training-wise, the question that I have right now still is, um, okay, we see that, for instance, the surgery example, using a cadaver, um, the training can be as good um, as using a real, or as using a, a simulated cadaver versus a real cadaver. Um, the question is, can it be better? And that I don't know yet. Um, and maybe we'll see some papers coming out here in, in, in a year or so that show maybe some statistical analysis or a, or a, um, a meta-analysis meta of that. Um, but that's something I'm interested in because when you have that, um, then I think education really, it's, you know, perks up their ears and says, wait, you can do it better, you know. Um, more, yeah. more questions from, uh, from the room? Anyone else? Yeah, see at the back there. Um, if you look at this from an uh, ethical point of view, um, yeah, how, how do you look at this from a from ethical point of view in education, like this mixed reality or extended reality? Oh, fair. Uh, well, that's a big question, but I appreciate <laughs> that. Um, 30 seconds. Yeah, 30 seconds, go. Uh, I would say that, well, for now, let's, we could focus on a piece of that uh, question. For instance, a big worry is accessibility. Um, you know, it's great if you could have a headset available to everybody. That, that's just not the case right now. Um, students, I think, and learners in general just really struggle with um, 
if you don't have control of your entire rotation of your neck, um, if you don't like having the simulation on your face, I mean, then why use it, right? And so, and so you sort of assume that people will want to have this on their face. Um, there's a lot of reviews right now coming out about the new headset, the Meta Pro, and it's also a lot of discussions around how uncomfortable the thing is for many people. And on the other hand, right, when we're doing ethics, we like to debate. On the other hand, uh, I don't think that you should have this thing on your head all day. I don't think anybody wants to have a headset on their face all day. But going forward, uh, yeah, there's discussions as we, I'm also trying to work on this stuff with public values um, and try to take maybe a public values perspective on XR. Uh, so keep a lookout for that if you're interested in more of these ethical questions. Um, because trying to, yeah, sort of adapt to the risks and opportunities of this technology uh, is really, yeah, it's difficult because it's changing so quickly. Uh, because for instance, accessibility will become easier as these headsets get smaller. So then therefore, why ignore it? Um, but on the other hand, I uh, do see there that this continues to be a problem for many people, especially regarding <laughs> nauseous, nausea and uh, well, confusion. Um, mm. These are not simple tools. How many people do get sick from using these things? Then? Yeah, I think I've, I've heard numbers of upward of 40%, but 40%. I, I would have to look into that well, again. Okay, yeah. so it's not insignificant then. No, and, no, and another kind of basic, how much does a good one cost, a good kind of headset? Yeah, uh, well, the Meta Pro, I think, is 2,000 euros. 2,000 um, euros. Now, okay. the, yeah, and then I think the... I see uh, someone putting the, three fingers up. Well, so a couple things. So one is the Quest 2 is like 500 euros, I think, now. Um, and I, I would say just... If you feel like it, we're here at On the Rise Dacha. Come try the headsets. We're also doing the XR tour, so please reach out to us, email me, say that you're interested, and maybe we can make something happen regarding trying out these headsets because we have them, um, and you're open to come try them on uh, to see what you you also think. But yeah, I'd say about 500 euros will get you a nice headset. Uh, they are also talking about getting a Quest or making a Quest Three possibly next year, uh, Meta. Um, there's also a new open source headset that we've also ordered uh, called the Lynx, and it's made by a, well, a French company. It's supposed to be completely open source, so the platform then is not a problem. You, uh, you have an open source, you can use it the way you want. Uh, the headset is also mixed reality, so that's kind of nice for many people because not everybody likes full virtual reality, but it can do full virtual reality, I believe. Um, and we met with him, and it was very interesting that conversation. Um, but yeah, so there's there's some there's some options in the market is Something just exploding right now. I remember really years ago folding up a kind of cardboard box with yeah. an elastic band and yeah. strapping it around my head and, and putting a mobile phone in there. We're yeah. trying it with the kids. It's and very lightweight. Yeah, yeah it, it kind of worked. It was yeah. interesting just to experiment and have something in front of your eyes. I mean, mm -hmm. it wasn't exactly mixed reality or yeah. augmented reality yeah. or extended reality, but it was a first step, I guess. Yeah. There was a question at the back. I'm not sure if there's still a question. Yeah. Uh, Tim Waltman from uh, Wageningen. Uh, you mentioned digital twins and your work on the roadshow and traveling around the, uh, the Netherlands and seeing lots of similar examples. One of the interesting cases that we struggle with is we have, uh, I work for our central unit and we have a lot of requests for similar realms of experiences. So for example, a laboratory. And because of the pandemic, there's a backlog. People can't get into the laboratory uh, often enough. How often do you see those in the Netherlands? And is there a way to share resources around those? Yeah, I don't know if I can speak on the how often, um, but it's definitely a growing uh, concern, especially considering COVID is not gone. Uh, people are still wondering if those should be an option, a backup plan, right? Um, I know a tool called Lab Buddy that was very popular in Groningen. Um, they also did an interesting study on it that showed it was very effective with helping students uh, learn about the lab as well as have fun in the lab by just destroying the lab. Um, but you know, it's very interesting to see how students will appropriate these technologies and use them differently than we expect. 
Um, but again, I, I would say something similar around the idea that uh, having the option is really nice if you can afford it. Um, but how, how have you did you did you find that it that students wanted this? Are they asking for it? Uh, I don't know the answer to that question. Okay, fair. But we do know from uh, other working with other peer universities that they struggle with similar things, and so we've tried to figure out how do we share assets. But then uh, very quickly you come to the question of platform and what are you de developing in, and things become very tricky. But the, the essential structure, if you look at the sort of the, the design and the didactic structure, it's often very similar. There's enough themes that would be shared to warrant the sharing of assets. Yeah. 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 And media. Yeah, I agree. I, it's a very similar problem we see in ed tech, uh, just in general, right, is scalability and hosting all of these licenses and how. Um, the chemistry labs are very interesting. I would suggest anybody check out those examples. Um, people are really invested in those. Uh, other problems with that uh, is <laughs> some interesting stuff like, for instance, uh, when you're in the chemistry lab uh, in VR, uh, you don't notice when the fumes that you mix together kill you. So, so sometimes students would end up killing themselves in the in the simulation without realizing it, right? Because they I'm glad they you said in the simulation. The, yeah, yeah, I'm being I very was getting specific. a little bit worried there that they were mixing these things in the real <laughs> well, if world. Don't, if you don't put down the gas hood, you know, you'll no, get, you'll that's gas true. yourself that's out. Very that's very true. Yeah, you do have to have some real world common sense <laughs> exactly. as well. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, and how do you show that in VR? You know, it's very yeah, yeah. yeah. Good point. Another question. Yeah, I, w I was wondering if you have any examples or thoughts about other usages of uh, XR, apart from the situations you described. They're all high risk, uh, high cost, you know, flying an airplane, doing tests in labs, um, operating upon people and stuff like that. I was wondering, they, to me, they look all look like the same solution to the same kind of problem. And I was looking for other usages of XR in education. Uh, yeah, I, I guess one way to answer that question, there's a thousand ways, but one way to answer that is, uh, I guess I'm a bit hopeful as well that uh, as simulations become more, well, easy to make, um, as well as, well, more popular to use, I, I would hope that there'd be an opening sort of for artists, writers, screenplay writers, uh, storytellers in general. Um, there's been some very interesting reports on how storytelling can make simulations so much more fun and interesting. Yeah. Um, and so maybe there's, there is more room for art, uh, more room for people to go in there with you know, soft skills, as they say, um, and flex their own muscles. Um, but I, I would, I'd be curious to hear you later. Uh, maybe we can have a coffee over what kind of problems that, that you're talking about. Um, because I, there is a lot of problems <laughs> that VR is trying to solve. And it's not clear what is the best solution yet, I think. Another question, Ariana? So, so I have maybe a remark to that and, and a question afterwards. So one thing I was thinking when you said this engineering of the windmills and everything, I think it could be used as an inspirational tool for students, you know, like to put them into the right track of what they want to study. Like, I think maybe that's a low barrier one, because if someone had put me in a windmill walking and seeing the knobs, you know, maybe I would be an engineer. It's super interesting. So I think that's maybe like one of the low lying apples, like just an inspirational tool for students that are about to graduate. Um, having said that, I do have a question, um, which is how do you see this uh, whole thing um, as a path to democratizing a bit education, right? I mean, going back to this lab example, like if we go to developing countries, they normally are lacking behind among others because they don't have access to the actual installations, right? So this would be a great tool, but on the other hand, it's a very expensive tool, right? So is it really helping democratizing or creating yet another uh, sort of step in between? Yeah, 
That's a great question. And I, I, think it's, I think it's on a lot of people's mind, especially when they look into the privacy laws and the problems that we're seeing with having sort of like one platform to rule them all, such as Meta or as we see possibly in the future, Apple. Um, again, one thing to look at is where well, you can check out our XR trend report where we talk a little bit about this um, regarding just the future of XR. Um, but I think, yeah, democratization of this would require, again, maybe a leadership in <laughs> Europe to sort of take this on. And I see the European Commission wanting a more responsible metaverse. So I'm curious to see what they mean by that. Um, but if you mean access to te technologies, um, specifically like the hardware, um, it'll, it will continue to be difficult, right? Because even, even Meta can't manufacture, manufacture these things fast enough for what they want to, which is to give them to everybody. Um, and maybe that's a bigger question, right? Which is why do they want to give it to everybody? <laughs> what kind of data is so valuable? Um, yeah. When, when you're weighing up the pros and the cons for yourself then in this mm. kind of thorny area of, you know, the, is it an added value or is it with all of the data issues actually something that's quite scary? Which side of the fence do you come down on? Yeah, I think I generally come down on the, a bit more of a pessimistic side. Really? I really am impressed with the simulations that we have, but it's really unclear still what kind of uh, yeah, opportunities that they want to take advantage of in the future. Um, what we start seeing, too, is they're able to make probabilistic models of how you will move in the metaverse. Um, so uh, they start basically digital twinning you. Um, and that's a very interesting concept. I mean, you know that marketing does this, right, through different facets of cookies and whatnot online. Um, but to have your body um, and your shape and your mouth and your tone of voice and the way you breathe during certain simulations all recorded is uh, just like, like I said, we're kind of you kind of just drowned in the data. Um, you, you, there's so many possibilities. Um, so, you know, as we wait for regulations and regulators to, to decide what will be fair, um, it's also good to just read up on that for yourself and, and try to Consider it when you go into these things. Um, again, come check us out <laughs> at the XR booth. Uh, you'll be very surprised at what's possible. Um, and that's really, I think, the charm of this technology. Be, be aware of the dilemma, but not terrified by it to the extent that you don't see the opportunities of the technology. Exactly. And we see this with a lot of emerging technologies. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. And if you're with your most optimistic hat on, where are we in five years with XR in the classroom in the Netherlands? Yeah, we, uh, I would hope that we'd have a, maybe an open access uh, headset available for people to use. And students could basically use this. There's a cool term called just-in-time immersiveness. So you would allow students to have the opportunity to, for instance, talk about the wind generator that just got built out in, I don't know, Skumanak Oak or something. And they would be able to go and be on that wind generator for just a second. Um, and then maybe the wind generator, they could explode the wind generator or something and, and watch it <laughs> fall to pieces. Um, but in turn, sort of having the teacher there inside the virtual reality with them, I would hope. And we see that in some of these applications, but it's still, still in development, I think. Tied to real world events and also links into the inspiration, I guess, of, of people in education and, and, you know, kids in education to yeah. see things which are happening in the real world and be able to go and experience and feel, feel them. Yeah. Without, in, yeah, without the risk of losing their, you know, their own data profiles and whatnot, like having an option, you know. That's the caveat then, isn't it, really, to protect the data side so the open source yeah. side is so important. Yeah. Any last questions from, from the room? Yeah, we have one last question here. Yeah. 
maybe to to trigger your uh, uh, creative fantasies a bit further. Um, uh, I'm, uh, I just saw actually Manu Kapoor, our keynote speaker in the room as well, and uh, this morning he talked a bit about productive failure as well. And to me, this seems like if you talk about possible alternative uses of extended reality, that this sort of teasing out different possibilities and creativeness in in students could be a possibility. Do, do you already see examples of that? Is that something you recognize or not at all? Uh, well, I, I can certainly imagine that uh, having you know better physics engines in simulations would be an amazing way. For instance, when when you ask the question, invent something, um, just having simulated pieces of an engine or other you know engineering parts could be put together and then activated maybe on call and through the simulation. Um, I'm not sure what the benefit of that would be in virtual reality, other than perhaps a three-dimensional figure of it. Um, but I do see this, as he said before in the keynote, that this challenge is sort of, again, how we think education should go forward. Um, I don't want to do a worksheet in VR. <laughs> so suddenly we have a whole other question about what does it mean to have creative curriculum, um, hopefully created by the students, I think, as well, uh, in a simulated environment. Um, yeah, but for now, we wait. One last question. How many hours a day do you spend in the virtual reality, extended reality world? Oh, if we're on tour, um, I'm probably two hours in, in it, like, you know, for the week. But I've done uh, longer sessions, and I also kind of struggled to, uh, to get through them. Okay. Uh, after I took the headset off, after about three hours in a virtual world, it was, it was a heavy, heavy feeling. Okay. Um, and yeah. if people want to find out more about this, they can contact you in the real world? Yeah, please contact me in the real that? world. Um, come see our XR tour. Again, we're over in the future room. Um, check out our trend report that'll be coming out um, next year, hopefully. And uh, yeah, please. John Walker, thank you very much for joining the podcast. Thanks, Andy. Thanks to everybody for attending the sessions. Thank you to Ariana Torres talking to us about quantum technology and John Walker talking to us about extended reality. This was an edition of the Surf Sounds podcast uh, recorded live at the Brabant Holler during the Education Days 2022. I'm Andy Clark. Thank you very much for listening.